Welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margot Escott, and today I'm really happy to have a new good friend named Joe Bill coming on the show today. Joe is well known as one of the finest improvising teachers around the world, and I met him last January at the same time I met our mutual friend Susan Messing, and they blew my mind. So, hi, Joe. <laughs> hi, Margot. How are you? I'm great. Good, good, good. It looks very sunny there. It is very sunny and very hot. Very, very uh, hot. Well, then I'm glad I'm in Chicago where it's about 74 degrees. <laughs> oh, how pleasant. How lucky for you. It's very good for my Irish disposition. And your skin. And my skin, yes. for sure. Your skin. Your fine, white, I won't say pasty skin because it's not really pasty. Well, it's it, now it's lightly sunburned, so I'll take that over pasty, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I can be too blunt sometimes. So no, let's, okay. let's, let's talk about Joe Bill. Have you been following <laughs> politics at all, or do you get into that? Or um, Yeah, actually, I, I went to some shows last night. When I came home, they had just done uh, they had just done the vote on the skinny repeal, and I found out that McCain had voted against it, and that was pretty exciting. And, um, and I've still been waiting to see the video of, uh, of the defeated Mitch McConnell. Like I saw the very end of it, just like in his whole posture had just changed and it was, it was beautiful. So, uh, yeah, I, I do, uh, I need to follow politics, um, partly personally and then partly because when Mark and I do Bass Proud, you know, part of, part of that angle there takes on a social satire sort of spin and, um, to be able to articulate, you know, simplicity in the midst of, complex political issues and and the you know the shit fest that it is right now it's it's something that that i just need to be able to do absolutely and our new director of communications from the white house is presenting he's providing fodder for every comedian around right now oh my god and right out of incredible central casting for sopranos yeah that guy it's insane it's i mean it just gets just when you think it can't get crazier it gets crazier so, you know, I love the history of improv, and back in the days of the Compass and early, mm -hmm. early improv, I think they used newspapers and current events to do their shows. I understand that they would take articles and they do monologues off of articles from current newspapers way back when. Yeah, yeah that's my understanding as well, and I think it was, um, you know, the University of Chicago set, so there's, you know, intellectuals, and people were very politically aware, aware and, uh, and it was, this was even, you know, this was... 13, 14 years, even before, like, the, the crazy riots and uh, the Democratic Convention of 68 in Chicago. But, um, yeah, my understanding is they they were very keen to uh, extract stories from the political and global landscape and then sort of marry that with um, David Shepard and Paul Sills had this idea of, like, putting people into different scenarios and improvising, you know, based off a given scenario. And so some of that would just be, like, real-life people doing real life things. Some of that would include some flavoring of the political landscape. And then some of that, um, and, and then there would be that piece where people would comment on the government, the local or national or global politics is my understanding. I wasn't there. So uh, where were you? <laughs> uh, let me see. I didn't, uh, I think that was all in the early fifties. And then I was born like 10 years later. <laughs> Oh, you're a young thing then. I'm a young cop. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it some days, but uh, yeah, up in Chicago, uh, 55 feels uh, old, but down in Florida, 55 feels very young. It is very young. Yes, it yeah. is. I'm one of the youngest people I know down here. <laughs> yeah, there's, 
It's uh, Florida's that state where where you go because uh, I'm a, I'm a person that likes the cold, but I heard even stories of people in Florida that used to love the cold, and for some reason your body just gets colder and colder as you get older and older. So off to Florida you go. It's dinosaur <laughs> land at times, and I just saw you in Sarasota. You saw our mm-hmm. audience there. It yeah, was that mixed. was great. That was a great festival. Well, that Will Lurie is a wonderful man, isn't he? God, yeah, Will Lurie is one of my best friends in the world, and, uh, and and I was surprised to find out it was the ninth festival. Like I had heard that there was a festival, but my mind is in that place where you know something could exist for one or two years or ten years, and I, I lose track of that. So, but yeah, it was an amazing festival. The the setup there at Florida Studio Theater is amazing, and um, yeah, and all the shows were so fun. It was like it was really, really even despite the heat, the steamy Florida heat. It was great to see uh, see and play with so many friends down there. It was incredible. So mm-hmm. when I first started improv, which was only uh, almost seven years ago now, so I'm a, I'm a newbie, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm a therapist, and I immediately saw the connection between therapy and improv. Mm-hmm. And I've only taken one class with you, but I feel like your class had a lot of therapeutic and spiritual components to it. Was I... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've been in and out of therapy for 30 years, and I'm a big fan of it. And I think, um, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of what I teach in improv is uh, scenic and, and the acting piece of it. Some of that comes to um, reacting honestly to what's in the moment and then being in touch sort of psychologically and emotionally with how we are in the scene so that you can play the context of whatever circumstances you find yourself in, in a way that's more deep and rich. And so in a way it calls upon, um, gestalt, it calls upon emotion-based therapy. That is just in terms of the awareness and the willingness to feel. Um, and it calls a little bit on cognitive behavioral where it's like you're noticing how you're behaving and what's triggering you into certain actions and, um, and I think just like the, the awareness of, uh, the therapy process or the different approaches to therapy process is something that helps me when I improvise with different people, um, uh, both on a recognition level where it's where, okay, I kind of see what somebody's up to if I've never played with them before. And then it makes it easier for me to serve them. Um, and then also on a level of seeing what's underneath what's going on here right now beyond what our dialogue just is. I think I'm, I'm kind of wired now to have an awareness of deeper possibilities about what's happening between the lines as they say in acting. And I think one needs a good sense of empathy to really be a good improviser because that goes back to the yes and and acceptance kind of thing. I think that if we have empathy for other people, we can really kind of be with them. And not be so concerned about what we're going to say next. Yeah, I think I think in general I would agree with that. Um, you know, that said, there's a lot of really great comedy writers that you know have that little uh, bay leaf of Asperger's, or just like a tiny, you know, one one big toe into the spectrum, which has them be a little bit mo- more emotionally or empathetically detached, but also maybe a sharper eye to the math of the patterns of the verbal exchanges um, so that they're focused more on the collaboration of the dialogue and the situation, maybe more than the deeper stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and, and I don't know if I would call them worse improvisers, just like improvisers with a stronger capacity for the, the written as opposed to the related. Wow, that was really nerdy. I like it. <laughs> I love it. Yes, I'm, I'm writing it down as well. We're going to keep that in the notebook. So you've been teaching for quite a while. And, yeah, and I think it's one of the loves of your life, if I'm not incorrect about that. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it is my life and, uh, and it is a love of my life for sure. And what is it that you love about it so much? I think on a primal level, it's because I'm the son of two teachers. Uh, my father was a salesman and a football coach. In a way, both of those roles involve some teaching and being present. Uh, my mother was a nursery school teacher, so you know, there's there's the obvious psychological tie in there. Um, and so each of them, in the way that they would connect with the people they were coaching or the people that they were, the children they were teaching, or even uh, my dad mostly coached football, like on a grade school level, like up to eighth grade. But they both had a talent for looking at what they had and looking at what was in front of them um, and then applying whatever type of uh, motivation or connective technique techniques they had to connect with the people um, to help those people show up well. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that's that's uh, where the tie-in between improvising and teaching comes. It's just like, uh, you know, one of the things we say is you have to do the scene that is here, not the scene that you want to be here. And so, in, uh, you know, in sports, there's certain people that have a certain philosophy, you know, football that uh, they may adhere to and, you know, come hell or high water, that's how they're going to approach the game. Or in early childhood education, there's got reams of academia about uh, early childhood learning, the psychology of children. Um, but it's, it's the ability to, you know, you know the academic, it's in the back of your mind, but it's being present with what's right here in front of you. And I think the same thing goes for improv, where... Um, you know, we truly do learn, learn the rules when we first start out just to kind of get us on the road. But ultimately, improvising becomes about just being present and forgetting the rules or just letting the rules exist in the soft focus of your mind so that they come out innately um, and organically like in the moment. Because I'm, if I'm thinking, oh, I can't ask a question, that's why Mick Napier's book was a kind of a breakthrough for me as well. And I know you yeah. work with Nick. Mick, rather. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and yeah, Mick's, Mick's a genius. And he, um, you know, I think part of his part of his genius is not just being a contrarian where the rules are concerned. I mean, we went to university together and we... Uh, where was you know, that? That was at Indiana University. Oh, so, IU? In Bloomington? Yeah, I, yeah, Bloomington. Oh, right. That's where my dad went. Oh, really? Uh -huh. I love it. Yeah, it was the uh, best five years I ever spent, as I say. <laughs> but it was, um, uh, we were in a group and, and, you know, the five, there's five of us from that group that ended up moving up to Chicago. I think it was me, Mick Napier, Faith Soloway, uh, Mark Sutton, Eric Waddell, oh, and then Dave McNerland also. So, so those were the six out of a group of like 10 of us that ended up moving to Chicago over the span of three years. And a lot of the habits or the processes that we began and employed in order to have a successful improv and sketch group in college um, translated in this transition up to Chicago. And at the, at the head of that 
um, was Mick. Like Mick is the one who um, he's very brilliant. He's the the son of a construction guy. And, uh, and so he has a real engineering mind, but he's also, when he gets interested in something, he goes all in and obsessively just devours it and then applies it. And so I think, um, even in college, there was a little bit of this using the history of what had been written about improvisation sort of as a suggestion to how we might work, but we got really, really lucky that the people that were in that group, even in those early days, were so talented and so connected that there really wasn't a lot of application or mindfulness of improv rules that helped us, you know, do a 75% different show each week. And I think one of the annoyance tenets, which is uh, take care of your own shit, take care of yourself and, um, uh, you know, think, uh, things that are like self-focused really, which is like, let go of your bullshit and be here. I think that uh, it kind of came from college because we would rehearse at midnight. We'd, we'd rehearse like it from midnight to two twice a week before we do a Friday show. And we just didn't have time for anybody to bring their bullshit in. Mm-hmm. And so take care of your shit. Initially, I, I, I think this meaning of like show up, ready to play, ready to connect you know, we're not coming here to chat for an hour and then start rehearsing at one. It's like, let's show up and get shit done. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's, that is the one thing I think I can track to our university experience that, um, that when Mick came to Chicago, it was kind of a cornerstone, uh, because we were successful. It was kind of a cornerstone of his teaching. And then he was just really suspicious of, of rules and really suspicious of how rules put you in your head and how you're obliged to this, uh, pedagogy, this teaching, this, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. this, this bullshit that got in the way. And he's also, because he's so smart, he gets easily bored if something isn't productive. So, I mean, even with Dell, he would clash. There was, you know, there was so much shit about learning, uh, learning Harold and listening to Dell's stories and all of these rules were, um, frankly, Mick would just be so bored that he would have to um, articulate a different way to do things, and he's uh, he's done that as as well as anybody. I mean, I certainly, you know, fifty years from now, Mick Napier will certainly be in the same ranks with Del Close or Keith Johnstone or David Shepard or Augusta Boal, whatever. It's uh, he's just that good. Um, I went out, I went to Chicago for my first time last year. I studied with Jimmy Corain. I did an intensive with Jimmy, and sure. uh, it was just fantastic. And talk about therapy. Anyway, oh, yeah. a very oh, therapeutic. Will. Oh, um, he will. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I, I went to Second City, and I was clueless because I didn't realize it was entirely sketch comedy. So mm. I turned in the tickets I had for Second City that week and just went to the Annoyance the rest of the week. Uh, mm-hmm. And I felt wonderful. I loved it. I just love being at the Annoyance. So, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm very proud to have been a part of the Annoyance sort of from the beginning. And, um, and I had a really crazy ride through the 90s with Annoyance. And, uh, and even though I'm, you know, I'm kind of like a retired supportive alumni and it was time for me to go on. Uh, when Mark and I started doing Bass Prav uh, and doing our own thing and I discovered duos and went back to long form a little bit, the the annoyance is such a part of my formative years in Chicago that, um, that you know, even when I go back today, it's, it makes me really happy to see like all these younger, you know, 20-somethings and even early 30-somethings that they have no idea who I am. 
to see that same spirit, you know, transformed and evolved into the, the minds and bodies of this new generation. And it's just as brilliant and sloppy and messy and uh, offensive or edgy or whatever the hell. Like, it, it really has evolved, I think, in an organic, beautiful way. And, um, and I think a lot of that credit, you know, Mick and Jennifer are the ones that have, you know, that curate and foster what this this thing is and it it is it has avoided the trap sometimes institutions get caught in the trap of um, not being able to leave their past or always like holding on to some of the past Um, i think there's flavorings of what the annoyance had there but i really think that they uh, the spirit of it is what matters and out of that spirit then comes a constantly evolving stream of uh, both improvisation uh, and sketch over there, but I'm I'm glad you had a good time. I mean, I, I, you certainly heard more cussing and uh, you experienced less sanitized entertainment over there. I'm sure. Well, I felt at home there. Let me put it that way. In fact, I'm going to be uh, using their stage in September at the uh, Yes and Psychology Conference that Stephanie McCullough is putting on. Oh, so cool. I'm like, ah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, well, that's I mean. Uh, that's a perfect place for a psychology conference. And Stephanie McCullough, I love her. She's wonderful. I mean, she is she is brilliant and tireless, and what she gives to the community up here is it's incredible. She's so talented and just such a good person. Really, love is. her. Yeah. So, and you, your connection with IO um, it used to be called the Improv Olympics, but the Olympic Committee said no, 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 can't do that. Yep, sent the cease and desist, and uh, threatened to sue and uh, all that shit. And I, I was around, but I can't remember when this was or whatever, but I just remember, yeah, I remember when that happened and whatever, it's bullshit, we move on. And I mean, if you go see, have you been to the new IO yet? No, I'm, I'm hoping to get, uh, hopefully in September I'll be there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, there's four different theaters in this building and two bars and, um, and it also has sort of evolved uh, and is doing its thing. And I think because it has so much space, uh, they're branching out a little bit and it's not just long form. There's some sketch stuff. There's some stand up stuff. There's some, there's some innovative stuff. Um, I took a friend down there, a friend from France down there to see some, uh, we saw some heralds and then we saw a late night show. Uh, and I forget the name of the late night show, something like, uh, uh, it, it had the, it had the word diarrhea in it, but it was like a, a takeoff, uh, the devices, I think five different people read excerpts from their diaries when they were kids Mm -hmm. and then people would improvise off of it. And it was easily the best show of the night for me to see, even though it was in one of the smaller upstairs theaters and that theater was only about half full because the different people that read from their diaries, it was like so authentic and so vulnerable. And so like everybody got to groan and laugh with them because it's like, Oh, we've all, you know, when you have to look back on on how adamant or sensitive or whatever you were as a as a teenager growing up, it's just so relatable that any of the scenes that followed after that were um, you weren't up against this uh, sort of embedded um, improv tension in the audience of like, I wonder if this is going to be good. We know they're making this up, and um, it just flowed, and it was authentic and beautiful and awesome. So. You know that's a that's an example of one show. I think I think that show happens once a month. Um, that is, uh, you know, part of this. 
it's the application, really, another application of therapy in long form. Did you keep a diary when you were a boy? You know, I didn't. The, the only time I kept a diary uh, when I was uh, 19, I toured in the group up with people. Did you ever heard of them? Of course. I didn't know you were one of them. Uh, I was, yeah, I was one of them. I was in up with people. Red, white, and, and blue. I, didn't you wear red, white, and blue clothing? And uh, um, I think that would have been a little before me, but we certainly had very ugly show costumes. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and so, yeah, and, and we spent a half a year in the United States and a half a year abroad. Hmm. Uh, and I was, we did look like the Caribbean and Mexico, and then we were in Venezuela, actually. Uh, and you stay with host families. And so the diary that I have is mostly from that year and a little bit after, but it is, I told the guy that runs the show, it's like, I'll come and I'll read some of my excerpts when I was in Venezuela, because you see me slowly, you see me slowly uh, slipping into this trap of like not being present with what's going on in this other culture and like wondering what's going on back at the fraternity. I would have been a sophomore, my sophomore year in, in college. And it's like, it's just so fucking shallow and, uh, and just like, you know, it, it has like your angst and your worries and your fears. And then like, you know, you're emerging, your emerging discovery of university and what that means to you as a, as an evolving individual and all that shit. But it's just like, when you read it, yeah, it just reinforces what I knew going on. It's like, oh, I partly missed the whole Venezuelan tour because I had too much of my mind occupied on what I was missing out on instead of just being present with what I was experiencing from town to town to town in this, in this country that was, you know, beautiful, um, at the time. Um, and it's, uh, even, I was even just before we got on, I was, uh, I was looking at a little story about the problems with Venezuela now. And so, um, that it's, to to see like where that country is now compared to where it was before and having like a personal connection to it. It just, uh, I'm such an improv nerd that it just reinforces that, that lesson of like needing to be present with what's going on right now. So you can fully sort of appreciate the, the beauty and the horror of everything. You know, that word, of course, Be Here Now was the slogan in the 60s when I was growing right. up with Timothy Leary and Ram right. Dass and others, Be Here Now. And yeah. everything that's uh, uh, old is new again, like yoga, hippies mm -hmm. are in, and mm -hmm. uh, the mindfulness. Mindfulness yeah. is a huge word, and but that's part of what it's about, is about being mindful of where I am. And one of the things I like about Spolin's work, the genius, mm -hmm. like the mother, mother of improv, is yeah. is the physicality in some of her exercises and games about really recognizing your body in space and in space in relation to other things. Were mm -hmm. you a fan of, of Viola Spolins? I was exposed to her. I didn't know if I was a fan. Um, I think I stopped short of being a fan because of the the girth of her book. Uh, the improvisation direction, like that book is so thick and there's so much stuff in there and it is pretty dry to read. Um, and, and to be fair, when I first experienced or saw her book, I was still, you know, in the shallow part of my persona and I couldn't appreciate, um, I couldn't appreciate the content of her book. I think I appreciated more when I started at second city in 85, this, her story about 
coming to Chicago and helping immigrant women who, um, you know, had been marginalized or in really shitty situations and using improv and gibberish exercises to get women who spoke different languages to connect and to sort of help lift them up. And so the, the part of her history that initially impacted me and, and that I could say I was a fan of was learning the origins of why improvisation, which, <coughs> excuse me, um, which I think in a way seems even more like way more noble than um, just using improvisation to entertain an audience. Well, and as a social worker myself, Viola worked with a social worker that she learned a lot from called Neva Boyd at Hull House, which uh -huh. I make a pilgrimage, pilgrimage to when I come to Chicago. So actually oh, cool. the mother of social work and the mother of improv are connected. That's amazing. It is that's amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. It's a, uh, yeah, and, and I think it's, you know, there's, uh, I got to meet Paul Sills a few times and was never, I never had a, you know, what I call a great experience with him. He always seemed kind of sour to me, but like, mm -hmm. uh, what pressure it must have been to be her son. And it, uh, that also because of how she used improv and then him, him kind of being one of the people that it's like, okay, we can use this, but it's only going to be to create theater. You know, we can't use improvisation as something we would charge an audience for. By God, that would be, you know, horrendous. Mm -hmm. And then Del Close uh, butting up against Paul Sills and saying, no, this is an art form all of, you know, uh, in and of itself. And people someday will watch people collaborate in an improvisational way. And they will see beautiful theater. Um, that, that evolution from Spolin through Sills and then my experience with Del to me is, is very interesting. And it's, you know, it's, uh, in bringing up Spolin, I, you know, she's, she's, she kind of has resurgences that I run into. And, uh, I was just in Australia, uh, last year and Gary Schwartz and I were like kind of the two, uh, head clowns of the, uh, the improvention in Canberra. And, um, and we did like a little panel and we, we did like a little, we went from Canberra then we went to Melbourne together and we, we uh, talked and Patty Stiles moderated just about like Dell and, and Viola. And um, it was really great to hang out with Gary because I think we can't remember if we had met before, or maybe we had met for a second at Chicago Improv Festival, but just to sit and old school style, just like have a beer and tell different stories and, you know, reflect on what we'd seen at the festival through the, you know, through his eyes and my eyes and, you know, through Viola's eyes and through Dell's eyes. Um, and just through like the eyes, uh, yeah, just that we, I, I'm departing because it just hit me. It's like that we're doing that. We do what we do. And that, that I'm even here talking to you about this because this is my life is amazing to me. Uh, and it's, uh, and in part, to bring it back to Spolin, like if Spolin had never existed, I don't even know if we'd be here having this conversation. Exactly. Gary Schwartz has been mentoring me, and I am a lucky, lucky girl. And it's changed uh, the way I teach improv today. Um, yeah. He's, I was trained by a Del Close student, and mm -hmm. uh, who maybe he was there when you were there. And, uh, and it, it's a different approach for me now, using Spolin exercises in games. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it is cool. In fact, I'm working with a group of people with Parkinson's disease. I'm doing a pilot project with them starting next week. So 
It's oh, how fun. interesting. Yeah, and I love bringing it to people who, you know, they're never going to perform probably. They're not there for yeah. performance. They're there for the enjoyment and laughter and joy that we get out of playing improv. And so is, is that the mission? I mean, are you are you working with that group just to have fun and play? and Or is there any secondary? Uh, it is a research project. A colleague mm -hmm. from Chicago is helping with the research part of it, and it's a pilot project. And I, I must admit, the, the one of the goals I'd like to have is that they want to continue and maybe perform at senior residences so they can show that people with Parkinson's can get up on a stage and do improv and motivate other people to maybe not necessarily do improv, but we can do more than we're doing. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, such a devastating disease. Uh, my dad and, had and, it. Uh, it, yeah, it's brutal. And there's um, there's a couple of uh, a couple of my mentors, sort of in the corporate training world, um, had had gotten in. There's one guy I haven't seen in a while, but it was hitting him pretty hard. Um, and so the part of me that's also like amateur neuroscientist and like I'm interested in all that, you know, part of me is like wondering, it's like, well, what would be if you got people regular repetitions in improv who had Parkinson's, like, does would that have any neuro neurological effect on, you know, helping them maintain or, uh, uh, help, helping them be like more mentally healthy or more, um, uh, acutely aware or whatever, whatever's going on. Like, I, 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 I don't know. I don't even know what the question is I'm asking, but like, is, is there anything like on a neuroscience level that you're looking for? Or well, I'm not doing that kind of, I'm doing anxiety and depression in this research project. But I, do, I did play a game with some of the people that wanted to find out about before we launched the group. And we did that game where make your eyebrows look surprised and your nose looks it smelled something and your mouth happy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. Gary taught me. And oh, it moves fun. the face because one of the things with Parkinson's is they get a mask-like expression and they have no affect. So yeah. that might be something to look at further down the line. But I'm... I think that there may be a lot of value in terms of facial movements, body movements, singing, because I'm mm -hmm. going to incorporate singing as well. So, yeah, it's uh, that whole that whole realm of like facial expression and facial movement, and it's the neurological impact it has, like on your brain, is is super interesting to me. It's um, you know that that idea of if you're in a funk or if you're like in a little depression role. If you just conscientiously like make your face happy uh -huh. and like you exercise a happy face like every day about how that can neurologically help bring you out of it, it's it's that's kind of mind blowing if you think about it. it, it just smiling produced in a research study so almost mm -hmm. the same results as an antidepressant. Just remembering to smile all day long. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, it's a, I guess that's another another vote for fake until you make it. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I wanted to ask you about corporate training and how that's different from TV. You teach all over the world, improvisers, many experienced improvisers, as, as well as some newbies. Um, mm -hmm. But how does that differ from your corporate training? Um, I think there's some overlap and I think there's some difference. And usually, I guess the first one would be like, what's the objective? Right. And so when I'm doing corporate training, so I, I design and I'm kind of the director of corporate training for IO for Sharna. And, um, so that means if, um, on one level I'm helping people that are sort of a generation younger than me, like in their thirties or pushing 40 to see how to speak corporate and connect the dots or apply the lessons. Um, 
on another level, it's I'm interacting with clients. And even though most of the objectives that clients have fall into the same bucket, um, I think there's, you know, your missions are things like fostering cross-communication and departmentally to break down silent thinking and, you know, take a more holistic approach to the business, things like that, where we would just say develop group mind. Um, and, and so, you know, the, um, with corporate people, with corporate people, there's the, um, some of them have no idea what their, what this even is or why they should do it. Um, you know, a commonality in, in corporate people and improvisers is really just helping people get out of their own way so they can play. Um, and so I think I, I'm the same guy in front of each class. Um, I also, whenever I teach a corporate program, there's part of my subconscious that has my eyes open to who's the person that's working in this corporate environment who's really a painter uh, or who's really a cellist, you know, that I can encourage to quit their corporate job and go be an artist. (laughs) Um, And so personally for me, that's fun. Yeah. Have you ever, do you ever get frustrated teaching? Have you ever been teaching and you get frustrated with a student? or? Um, you know, if I have, it's been a long time ago because I'm so um, – I just have a genuine curiosity that there's almost a perverse pleasure in having a, a really strong piece of resistance in the room. And it's, I think it's also for my psychological capacity to fixate on things and, uh, and problem solve um, where – for me, I enjoy working the puzzle, and even if I can't, you know, even if I can't change that person, the act of influencing a different personality in a corporate or a improv environment is something that I kind of take personally as a as a challenge to model for other people. Right? How to deal with conflict resolution? Well, and I think I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that there's, um, especially since Trump got elected, but like this part of the American value system has been this emphasis on winning and winning and winning and winning and losing sight of, you know, the role of government is to compromise and the role of humans is to compromise. And, you know, to, to know what the couple of things that you hold on to that are you that are not compromisable, so you don't have to compromise the important things. But then outside of those, you know, three, four, five, six things that are your own, make up your own integrity and persona, that everything else is open for compromise. And whether you end up compromising or not is unimportant. It's can you engage in a, in a, a, a dialogue or in an exchange that is the spirit of compromise, even if it doesn't work, just so you can practice understanding each other and listening to each other. And there's so like that just doesn't seem to exist in the way, you know, uh, the politicians and the marketers and the religious people, they benefit when we're polarized and we're not in a, we're, we're, we're not in a, a, a state of compromise. It's there's money to be made and, um, sheep to be herded in this, you know, this zoo of absolutism. So for me, if I get somebody who's really difficult in a, in a room, my natural curiosity and joy in dealing with that person, I think is something that might be um, 
beneficial to other people who might not think that way. And so I don't know. I don't think I can change the world or anything, but I can just, you know, this is what I, this is what my love is. This is what I do. And every day as I do this thing that I do, if I can just, um, try to be, you know, try to model this spirit of improv and model my own integrity and, um, with the bigger goal of uh, leaving the earth, having done 51% good and 49% other, including evil, then that's just how I, that's how I do it. So that's my relationship to, that's my long answer for my relationship to problematic people. In no, it's great. And you are a brilliant teacher. I was going to say when I started to interject that in therapy world, we say resistance is not about the client. It's about the therapist inadequacy. Because if we look at them as resistant to what we're doing, we're maybe trying to impose ourselves or our beliefs or whatever it is too much on them without really accepting them where they are right then and there. I think that's the exact same thing for me. It's the exact same thing as an improv teacher. It's the exact same thing as a corporate trainer. Um, and, and whether I'm teaching straight up improv or improv application to leadership or um, the executive presence or storytelling for leaders or whatever, um, there's a woman named Amy Goldfarb who is, uh, she's a, a former improviser, uh, actor from Massachusetts, uh, and she's a brilliant facilitator and something she taught me, it was kind of a twofold lesson, which is accept everything and then give them permission to do what they're going to do anyway. <laughs> and so, uh, you don't have to solve any problems you, uh, resistance expects resistance. So if you get resistance, um, what if you give them another option so that they can explore what's under their resistance? Because it's not about you. It's like if you're there to help them get out of their own way, then cool, here's your resistance. You're invited to continue to be resistant. And that's where, uh, that's where you have to just remove your ego and just let those people do the work. Ego is a big word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. And spirituality is an interesting word. Uh, I felt there was a lot of spiritual things going on when I took your class for some reason. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have a hard time labeling myself spiritual or not labeling myself spiritual. Like, I'm not sure what it is. I think you and I talked for a second just about it's you know, there's a, there's part of our brain that sees ourselves as alone together. And there's part of our brain that knows that we're all connected and part of one thing. So maybe what being spiritual is, is the acknowledgement or the acceptance that we all are part of one thing. And when we can experience the, that part of ourselves uh, or us together, that is that oneness, maybe that experience and, you know, the release of the neurotransmitters and all your good chemicals that goes along with that. Maybe that's what we call spiritual. Um, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm neither, uh, I'm, I'm neither accepting nor resistant, you know, to the term. It's just like, maybe I'm like spiritually agnostic, but I'm not a, I'm certainly not a religious person, but no, I do believe no, that, not religion. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I believe I like, I, I get resistant or I, I get, uh, when people say improv is like a cult or improv is like a religion. It's, they have the right to say that and view that that way, but I just, I'm like, oh God, let's not reduce ourselves to a religion. It's, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, a, a mode of being, it's a, 
it's not even art. It's an art medium, but it's like um, the paint we use is uh, partly that which we can't see. We can only experience together, and it's intangible. And yeah, I guess I just I guess that sounds like spirituality. <laughs> well, I think being willing to share oneself with another person honestly and openly. For example, it's a spiritual thing that you've been granting me this lovely interview and the time we've had extended talks. That's a spiritual thing. And you know the word spiritus spiritus comes from the word breath. Ah. And we're breathing each sense. other in and out. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, today I'm spiritual. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah, yeah, to be able to connect like this is there's um, the joy that comes from that or the peace that comes from that or that sense of connectedness to each other and to why we're here is I would rather be in this state than um, working on my taxes <laughs> by far. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Yay. Yay. So what's, what's coming up in Joe Bill's life? Oh, we'll talk about you in the third person. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, Joe Bill, um, right now, I got back from a European tour. I think it was, it's been like three weeks now. And so I've been finishing up. I have another tour coming up in this fall and I've been finishing up some details for that. And that one will be, uh, Vienna and London and maybe other parts of the UK and, um, and Amsterdam and maybe some other parts of the Netherlands. Um, and so, the, the maybe the other parts of the thing I like I like to leave space like one or two days not to go see the local sites but to discover that there might be an improv group you know two hours from Amsterdam that would you know pay me to come and teach a workshop and uh, you know maybe I just jump on a train and go there and like have that uh, you know just like that that discovered experience of like oh I will teach something yeah somewhere that I didn't expect. So that was just about lockdown. And um, typically when I'm home, I'm either being a father and or I'm doing scheduling or doing admin or, you know, stuff like that. So I am I just scheduled a call tomorrow. I'm going to Dubai in uh, most or summer, most of November. So I have to see if it's going to be just in Dubai or if I might stop somewhere on the way or way back. And then just before I got on with you, I'm talking with people in France, and so there's a festival in Lyon in uh, in May next year. And I talked to some people in Toulouse, and I reached out to a buddy of mine in Brest. And so I'm envisioning now in May, like maybe April into May, um, like a tour where I, I could be in France for maybe five weeks. And uh, uh, because I speak just barely enough French to be passable on stage. But there's just more and more French people have like come into my life, and that uh, we have a French guest thing with us this week, and just to be able to to speak in French, there's just something about that, you know. I think this uh, all this international travel is like reinforced for me the importance that I play in a second language, so that I can be more empathetic to the people that come to Chicago who play in a second language, and like what are the neurological implications of that? Like, how, how can you just be when you're playing in your second language? So this seems to be what's presenting itself to me. And uh, and that's really, you know, that's what I would call what's coming up for me next. That is fantastic. I have some friends in Jerusalem who are improvisers. Oh, cool. And one is uh -huh. a psychologist who's doing incredible research. He's actually training therapists in improv so they can become more genuine therapists, more real 
and genuine. But there's also some other folks there that are doing improv and games and play. And uh, it's that sounds like it might be a nice place to connect to. Yeah, there's. Um, I met some uh, some folks from Tel Aviv at the Athens Festival, and so there's an option to go to Tel Aviv if I want. Um, and so that kind of loops into like, well, maybe that's part of a Dubai thing. Yeah. But uh, what's your friend's name in Jerusalem? Um, there's Asiel Romanelli, and mm -hmm. um, I'll send you the links. And um, also um, Lenny Ravitch, I think is his name. He's a Gestalt therapist that uses games, like from Bernie DeCoven, as well as improv. And he's uh -huh. done his whole career doing this as a Gestalt therapist. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'll send you their information, yeah. Yeah, plays in the Gestalt so much. There's a guy, there's an improviser, his, his first name is Ravi, and uh, I think he's from Tel Aviv, and now he and his wife, I think, have moved to Germany. But he's also a neuroscientist. Wow. And, uh, and, and he was like in the academic world, and he was, he was an improviser, then he went to the academic world, did a bunch of research, and then he's in that track where like everybody's, there's just like the jealousy and the status and the power shit. And you, you know, you're writing your papers and you want to put forward an idea and try to get funding, but it's a whole bureaucracy. So I think he said, you know, it's just been like in the last two years, he just said, fuck it, I'm going back to improv. And then all of a sudden we meet and, you know, here we are, or maybe it was in Finland. Uh, yeah, I think it was in Finland. It was in Finland. It was in, in Tampa, Finland. And so... And I had heard about this guy, but I didn't know that he was in neuroscience. So this is one of the cool things about improv festivals. It's like you go, you meet, you see each other perform, and then the next thing you know, you're in a bar in Finland talking to a guy from Tel Aviv who's moved to Germany about neuroscience and, like, trading links about different studies and stuff. It's amazing. Oh, I'd like to get connected with him. He sounds like my kind of man. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, oh, he, yeah he's delightful. And this is actually a great reminder. It's like, oh, shit, I owe him an email, so... Thanks, Margo. <laughs> You're welcome, Joe Bill. Well, you know, you you said you'll do our next interview in three years. I hope it's not that long away. Um, okay, I accept. Whatever the next <laughs> one is, I accept. <laughs> because the next time we speak, I'd love to do a short scene with you because I love two-person scene, but I think we're going to have to start to draw today to a close. And Oh, yeah, we're we're kind of up against that uh, the, the optimal 45-minute window. Yeah. And that's okay. Might as, well, might as well leave something on the table to, to come back and eat later. Yeah, a little tantalizer for the next time. Yeah. I love it. Let's well, do that. I love you. How much fun being with you today. Just made my day. It's just wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself, Joe Bill. It's my pleasure, Margot. Love you too. And thank you so much for this opportunity and look forward to seeing you the next time.